Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, we come today in our uh, in the lectionary in the season of Lent to the story of the prodigal son is what most of us um, are most familiar with it called. I would actually argue uh, there are two prodigals in this story. And it's one of those stories that is incredibly familiar, uh, no matter how much experience you have or do not have with scripture or with the church. It's a very familiar story. I mean, behind us, we chose uh, the image that Rembrandt paints of the return of the prodigal for our image for this Lenten season. Um, Henri Nouwen, who is one of my favorite spiritual poets and writers, um, has a whole entire book called The Return of the Prodigal because he had traveled to, uh, to Russia, where this painting is, and sat in front of it for like eight to ten hours, just sort of meditating on it, praying through it, um, and the Lord really meeting him through um, that practice and really providing healing for some of his own deep wounds that he carried in his soul. So it's, an, it's a familiar story, but uh, as with anything that we become overly familiar with, there's always a danger that in its familiarity that it actually leads to an unfamiliarity. And so there's always a danger with that. But as I told a group from our community on Friday night, I, if I can be honest, I struggle with this story. Uh, and for two reasons. One is because I myself have a tendency to overly romanticize this story. Friends, this story is a mess. It doesn't end well. There's, no, there's not really a happy ending. There's a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? There's questions around whether or not the younger son has actually learned his lesson. He doesn't come out to meet the older son. He remains in the house at the party. There's questions even, right, we run to, and I think appropriately so, and we'll get into this a little bit, that the father in this story, a lot of us have found healing in that this is a, an image that we have of the heavenly father, but it's actually, I think Jesus does this intentionally, it is still a figure that falls short of what and who our heavenly father actually is. But it is a story. And so I struggle with my tendency to overly romanticize it. But as I was even sharing with that group on Friday night, part of my struggle with this story, and maybe it's sort of skewing and there's a little bit of bias here, it probably is true, is that I didn't have a dad like this. I didn't have a father who would run out and meet me with curiosity and compassion in the big moments or the small moments. In fact, even a lot of the, the male head figures in my life over the years uh, were much more the elder brother than they were the loving, compassionate, curious father. And so I even bring with me into this story a little bit of my own biases, because for what we have in this story that is supposedly true of God, I lack so much in my human relationships, where attachment is formed or an understanding and a way of seeing the world is formed. And so you come into a story like this, and I wrestle with it. I struggle with it. And I actually think that's the point. Jesus told a lot of stories. He told a lot of stories. And most often, there are stories that are creative and pithy that leave us wondering, Jesus, what did you actually mean? Some of his parables actually don't make things clear clear. They make things a little bit more muddy. They invite us to think. 
And one of the reasons why I think, and I would argue Jesus does this, is because he actually doesn't want us to run to the truth too quickly. Alexander Pope, who was a 17th century poet, said this one time as he was writing about poetry and prose and some of his criticism work, says, some people will never learn anything for this reason, because they understand everything too soon. Some people will never understand, will never learn anything for this reason, because they understand everything too soon. Jesus doesn't show up teaching systematic theology. He told stories, in part because facts cannot save us. Truth needs to make its way into the groundwater of our lives. And this takes time and it takes a subversive movement that moves past and under and around our guards, our wounds. Not in order to sort of Trojan horse it that they may conquer the innermost parts of us, but that God might enter, actually that we might enter and find that God has always been there longing to heal and to make space. One of my uh, favorite movies came out in 2019. It, it barely beats out Calvary with Brendan Gleeson, but it's a hidden life. Uh, it was directed by Terrence Malick. It tells the story of an Austrian farmer, Franz Jägerstretter. Did I say, Chris, did I say that right? Is that close enough? Close enough, all right, good, all right. Okay, good, thank you, I appreciate that. And this Austrian farmer, it's a story of his refusal to fight for the Nazis in World War II. It's a story following his contemplation, his inner wrestlings, the wrestlings of his family, of his community, of watching the Third Reich and what they would do to those who would dissent. It's a brilliant movie. It's one of the most beautiful movies, honestly, one of the more beautiful movies I think I've ever watched. And every single time you watch it, and it's been a lot now, finally just had to buy it because I was like, at this point, I'm renting it enough that I might as well just purchase it because of just every time you watch it, there's always something new. And I bring this up because uh, a few weeks ago, my best friend and his wife, who are, uh, they're co-planting and co-pastoring a church in Raleigh, uh, he texts me because he finally got around to watching it. And this is the text message that I woke up to the next morning because he texts me at 11 o'clock at night. And he says, Bliss, I saw The Hidden Life last night and I'm not sure I can recover. And when I called him the next morning, he goes, it's haunting. And I think, again, that's the point, because a story that is well told haunts you. Stories, well told stories like the one Jesus tells, these parables, when properly heard, can unsettle our assumptions. And we don't always like that. I don't always like that. I don't always like that the stories are intended to bother us before they bless us, that they are a gateway to a new world. And it's disorienting. They're disorienting stories that are intended to throw us off balance and then coax us into the strange world of God's grace, that kind invasion of God's life into ours. And you and I are not accustomed to the world of grace, to the world of God's life. We're accustomed to the world of rigid law, of just recompense, of a transactional way of living. We're convinced that this is the only way in which the world can be arranged. And so Jesus shows up telling stories. And so with that, let's sit through a few of these movements in the stories, a few things I want to point and invite us to sit with. The first movement in the story in our passage this morning is that Jesus tells this parable in response to the grumbling. The Pharisees and the scribes are beginning to grumble, and I think we're intended to think of um, Israel in the wilderness grumbling after the manna. 
And they're grumbling because Jesus is gathering and uh, there's an openness and a fellowship of Jesus with women and with men that they have deemed unworthy of fellowship. And what is Jesus' response? Again, Jesus' response is to tell stories. And he tells three stories. The, the story of the prodigal children is actually the third story. The first is of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek out the one. Of the woman who completely rearranges her house in order to find one lost coin. And the shepherd and the woman and the father in these stories are all intended to tell us something about the instinctual heart of God. They are each, in their own way, slightly flawed characters who point us to God as God actually is. And so what is Jesus trying to do? Is he trying to avoid confrontation? He's like, I don't really want to get into it, so let me tell some stories to confuse you, and maybe you'll go on your way. Now, what Jesus wants is he wants these leaders He wants his friends then and now to become the kind of people who first look to God and in their looking to God become the kind of people who more and more begin to see the world as God sees the world. That there is no one, that there is no story, that there is no wound or wounding that isn't welcome at God's table. This is Paul's whole point. From now on, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. These religious leaders to which Jesus tells this story are women and men who Jesus ate with and welcomed as God saw them. God sees them, including the leaders who he's telling this story as a way of pushing back against Jesus, the way he saw the world, the instinctual way he saw the world is every single person, every single story, every single interaction, every single moment was fertile ground for new creation. Jesus couldn't see it any other way. If Judas would have returned, Jesus would have welcomed him as he welcomed Peter on the beach because he saw Peter and Judas and Mary and Martha and every single person as fertile ground for new creation. Jesus' move is not to dehumanize the Pharisees and the scribes. That would have been our instinct, right? Completely dehumanize. But he doesn't do that. He even, through these stories, welcomes them, the very ones rejecting the people he loves because he loves them. Because Jesus wants them at the table too. He makes space. He makes room. He tells a story. To Jesus, their grumbling was fertile ground for the spring of new creation. Which brings us to the second movement, which is the actual story. And it opens with the departure of the youngest son. The younger son comes to his father and says, give me the share of my property that belongs to me. And so the father does that. He divides the property between the children. We're not, uh, nothing is said about the mother. Uh, Nothing is said about the background of the family. I think Jesus here is pulling from stories out of the Old Testament, which he would have been immersed in, of the younger supplanting the older. And when the younger son asks, the father gives. He divides up all that he has. Jesus goes on, a few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, traveled to a distant country where he squandered his property in dissolute living. What a a phrase, in dissolute living. What is that? We don't know. We're not told. 
And I actually think as, as easy it is to speculate, we should not. It could have been ideological as much as moral. He could have taken it to a different place and tried to replicate the estate that his father had. It could have been moral. In fact, we're going to see the elder brother make some assumptions that were actually not told. I think we're kept from knowing for a reason. I don't know what that reason is, but we're kept from knowing what happens. But that brings us to the, the third movement, which is the return of the younger son, right? This is a story of departure and return, of questions around whether or not we will return. When he had spent everything, there's a famine that takes place throughout that country, and he once again becomes in need. The younger son spends everything, and the famine come. The pressure of nature falls upon him. He's in need, and he finds work with someone in the land feeding pigs, which if you are um, of, uh, uh, if you're our Jew in the first century, anytime, you know that pigs are unclean. And I think Jesus is telling this part of the story because we are meant to hear desperation and shame. The manna has ceased for him. And in a moment, he becomes aware of himself. There's a lot of self-talk in this passage, in this story. He says, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. It would be better for me to go back to be a slave in my father's house than to keep doing this. He compares himself to his father's hired hands. What's so interesting in this moment is there's an assumption he's making about his father. And I think it's the assumption that drives him to leave that drives him to ask. And what assumption is he making? He's making the assumption that his father is concerned only about worthiness. And so his move, because that's the story he's telling himself, is he goes, I must humiliate myself even further in order to stir up my father's pity and acceptance. And so he sets off with that story in his body. He sets off and he goes to his father, but while, his fa while he was still far off, what happens? His father sees him, is filled with compassion, runs, puts his arm around him and kisses him. His father sees him and moved with compassion. And I think this is a father who knows that there is some wisdom in letting his son wander. We often talk about, uh, right, the father sitting on the front porch as if that was a massive thing in the first century. Watching. Longing, And I think that there's beauty to that because God certainly does pursue us, looks for us. But we're actually not told that the father is sitting on the front porch waiting and looking. That may have been the case. It may not be the case. But what we do know is that the father here is, is in many ways a different from the image of the heavenly father who in the earlier parable in the portion of Luke is the good shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. Or is the woman who goes looking for the coin? In this story, there's a kind of searching that the father allows the son to do. And I think it's intended to be a reminder for us that God will not wrangle. God gives us space to wander and space to come back home. It's a reminder that God tells really long stories. It's a story of departure and return, our own departure and return that sometimes happen over seasons. And sometimes, if you're anything like me, can oftentimes begin, like, there's multiple departures and returns throughout a day. But every single time we return, 
we find that God is already at home in us. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, says that the problem in prayer is not God's absence, but our lack of presence. It's not that God is absent as much as it is that we are unaware that God is always present in us and with us. And so I think one of the invitations to hear is the kind and gentle voice of God asking us, where are you? Where are you? It's the question of Genesis 3 that my friend Chuck shared with us on Friday. It's the question that goes at the very heart of where we have wandered. And God asks us that not because he's wondering. Like, oh, Regis, where are you? Christy, where are you? Zella, Bliss, Amy, Ben, where are you? I can't see you anymore. He, he, sees, he knows. It's a question for us to name the reality of where we find ourselves. That in that question, we might hear the gentle invitation to return home to God. Which the fourth movement then is the father's response. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring my best robe and ring. Kill the fatted calf. Let's throw a party. Notice that the son returns and calls his father, father, but he does not refer to himself as a son. He cannot name himself rightly. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's still in this moment gripped by shame. He cannot move from the wilderness into the promised land. And the father doesn't speak to his son, but he speaks to his slaves. And here I don't want to overlook the fact that the father owns slaves. The family is still living in a world that has not been yet set right. But for now, what I do want us to see is that the father includes the slaves in the celebration. And at the heart of this story is truly, as so many say, the gospel. The son thinks he must make a sacrifice in preparation, but the father is the one who does it for him, who cleans him, dresses him, honors him, welcomes him to his table long before the son thinks he's worthy of it. The gospel in part is the good news because it gently reminds us that some of the assumptions we've made about God and God's kingdom are wrong. Thanks be to God that some of the assumptions I have made about God and God's kingdom is wrong. And honestly, the American story, right? If, if this is an American short story writer, we stop here, stop at the celebration. And I'm almost out of time, so I almost have to, but we're not going to, right? Because if the American story, it ends with the celebration, happy, all ends, happy, happy ever after, the end. But actually, the story is just beginning. Because the fifth movement is the elder son. The elder son's in the field. When he begins to approach the house, he hears the party. Ask one of the other servants and slaves what's going on. And the slave is honest. It actually, uh, the slave actually recounts the actual events of what is happening. I think what's interesting is that there's no messenger sent to, told, to tell the older son. The younger brother doesn't come out to get him. And perhaps it's a failure on the father's part. Perhaps it's a failure on the younger son's part. I think it's also possible that it's the same wisdom the father exercised with the younger son of letting his children come into themselves. And the father comes out. Father doesn't hunt him down. But when he sees that the brother is angry and incensed, he comes to him and notice that the older brother can actually speak to his father as his father. But again, his perception of who he is, like his younger brother, is skewed. 
He refers to himself, he thinks to himself as a slave, but even more than that, he thinks of himself as someone better than a slave, but who is having and being forced to act like one. He makes assumptions about his younger brother. But this, when this son of yours comes back who devoured your property with prostitutes, again, we don't know that. That's what the younger brother, I almost wonder if it's what the younger brother fantasized about in the fields and was projecting on his younger brother. Like, if I had done that, here's what I would have done. Our stories are so deeply in us. And I think one of the things that we're meant to see in closing is that in, there are times when it is a farther journey from the field to the house than from the far country to the house. It's easier to be home and come back again than to be home when you've never left. I think it's one of the reasons why it's so hard to live for so many of us, live the faith that has been given to us, right? Some of us grew up churchy, but we never were actually deeply shaped by the Spirit of God. And the father responds to his son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to celebrate. We had to. There was no option. The rolling back of shame. I love the way that God says that to the people in Joshua. The rolling back of shame that is enacted by a rite and is also carried out liturgically. There's a rhythm to it. Even in our own lives, we are baptized. And then every week we gather here at God's table. That our lives would become liturgical, our entire lives becoming sacramental. We need rhythms and liturgies of blessing that grow up around what God is doing in our lives. Letting the goodness of God move us to bless and to celebrate, even in a season like Lent, because God has set a table in the wilderness. And then the story just ends. There's no resolution. And I would argue that one of the reasons why there's no resolution is because we're invited to find ourselves in the story. And beyond that, we're invited to make a choice. Whether we are in a faraway country or in the fields, will we come home to the God who is already at home in us? And so friends, wherever we are this morning, whether it is in the faraway country or in the field, friends, it is fertile ground for the spring of God's new creation. Whatever stories we have told ourselves about God, wherever we have taken our hunger and our desires and our longings, there are, those are the places from which God calls us home. Because friends, this is the goal of our life, to live with God forever. God who loves us gave us life. And it is in our own response of love that allows God's life to flow into us without limit. And so friends, the table is set. There is more than enough room. Will we come? Will we come? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.